I invite you to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is where we are uh, at this point in our journey through Hebrews. As you know, unless you haven't been here for a couple weeks, chapter 11 is the great chapter on faith. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 gives us a definition of faith. Uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. Key word, assurance, certainty. We distilled that down to a simple phrase, confident trust in the Lord. Confident trust in the Lord, the promises he's made. Confident trust in the Lord uh, in terms of his faithfulness to us and, and so on. So what the author does, and I want to pick up, uh, make one more comment about verses 13 through 15, uh, 16 rather, and pick up with verse 17 in just a minute. But one of the things, it struck me again as I was just reviewing all this yesterday morning, um, how important the Old Testament is. And we, uh, we often, if we would say it this way, well, the New Testament is really important, the Old Testament, eh, sort of important. Every now and then we might look at it. But from the author's perspective, he is, going, he is walking us through virtually the entire Old Testament and just highlighting people, obviously not any major discussion about them, but just highlighting all these giants of the Old Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 as he cites a couple of examples from the history of Israel to prove his point. These things are for us to learn from. I'm paraphrasing. It's a little longer than that. But that's essentially what he's saying. So I'm just, I was, it was just reminding me again that from God's perspective, the Old Testament is really important. That we study that as well as the New Testament. And, it, and that's what you see here the author is doing. He's highlighting one element of the Old Testament heroes and heroines, and that is their faith. And we had, we had learned in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And then we learned in verses 13 through 16 the eternal perspective about faith. And all of these individuals that he is citing, and we'll pick up again in verse 17 with these individuals, he's talking about everything they did, even though they were looking toward God fulfilling those temporal earthly promises like Abraham, as, as we looked uh, last time, still he had an eternal perspective. He was looking for something greater i.e. heaven, as, as, uh, as his perspective. For you and me, it's, it's important that we have, can I use this word, that balance, that we are living for this day, we want to represent the Lord well this day, and we want to plan for the future all the way depending on God, but at the same time have an eternal perspective of heaven and spending eternity with the Lord and, and so on. That's kind of that balance. I'm not sure the word's tension, but that balance. We are living our lives fully, this depending on and relying on the Lord as we trust him, but also that eternal perspective that God's going to keep all his promises to us. So that's kind of a summary without highlighting some of the people. Got it? Any questions? It's just a review of the key point. Verse, 20, uh, verse 17. The author now is citing the event that's recorded for us in Genesis 22. For God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
That's Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah. By the way, I think you know this, but Mount Moriah is the mount in Jerusalem on which the temple was built. It's the same place. It's exactly the same place. And so there's a lot of significance of this. I preached on Genesis 22, and I've often talked about, because it's a mountain, you have to walk up 2,500 feet above sea level. But as you're walking up that mountain, as Abraham and Isaac are walking up Mount Moriah, Isaac is asking, well, Father, everything's here, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? Remember what God, remember what Abraham's response was? God will provide. And then they get to the top, and he builds, he, Adam, uh, Abraham, with the help of Isaac, build the altar, and Isaac lays himself on the altar. I mean, there's as much faith and trust of Isaac as there is of Abraham. And then God stops him and provides a substitute. And I've often thought, that was about 2000 BC, 2000 years later, another father and son will walk up the same mountain. God the Father, God the Son. But when they get to the top of that mountain, because you know the temple, Jesus is crucified just a little bit west of Temple Mount, uh, there is no substitute for that son. He is the substitute. That preaches well. That's the point. It's an amazing. It's an amazing continuity between Genesis 22 and what happens with Jesus. Offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, was in an act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author is just summarizing the promises God made to Abraham. In verse 19, he, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, I don't know how you look at verse 19 then, but that's staggering faith. Abraham believed, he, it tells us here, he believed that even if he would have gone through and sacrificed Isaac, God would have brought him back to life. You following? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. That's, that's stunning faith. He, is, he so trusts God. Assurance of things hoped for, certainty of things not seen. Verse 1's definition. Assurance of things hoped for, certainty of things unseen. His confident trust in the Lord was so profound that even if he was going through with taking Isaac's life, that God would have given him back his son, that is, raised him from the dead. That's the kind of faith that the author is trying to communicate to us through these, citing these individual after individual after individual in the Old Testament. Okay? That's, it's just a tremendous story of faith. It's one of the great faith stories of the Bible, this, this patriarch Abraham. All right? Continuing. Verse 20, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, which, you know, it takes us... Back to Genesis chapter 27, when, when, when Isaac uh, blesses Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, verse 27, when dying, now this goes all the way to Genesis 49, when dying, blessed each of his sons, because each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, this is Genesis chapter 50, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, if you go back to Genesis 50, you, you, you see what Joseph says. Is, you're going to go back to the promised land. I know. Because you're going to claim what God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you go back to the promised land, take my bones, bury me there. And that is exactly what they do. And when you read uh, in, in Exodus and, and then throughout the wilderness wanderings, and as they go into the promised land under Joshua, they do take the bones of Joseph and bury him. He's buried there in, in, in Hebron. All right? So he's done now with the, with the patriarchs. He's done with the founders of, of Judaism, with the founders of the covenant faith. Now he gets to, he gets to focus on Moses, and this is extensive. There's a number of verses about Moses. Okay? Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Remember, the king's edict was to kill all the the boys. Verse 24, so you have verse 23, in effect, the faith of Moses' parents. Then verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeing pleasures of sin. He chose the reproach of Christ, greater wealth, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so you have verse 24 through 26, just a very, very brief summary of Moses' faith. And we we studied Exodus, what, two years ago, I think? But when we studied that, you might remember that Moses' faith grows. grows as Moses' faith develops. And it's not until he's 80 years old is he ready to lead the children of Israel out. And so when, when, when the author is saying this in verse 24 and 25, he's talking about Moses is 40 years old here. And he's choosing to identify with his people, the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt, rather than the court of Pharaoh, where he was raised. And I know we talked about this just real brief. Moses would have received by far the best education you could have received in the ancient world. And because he was the adopted daughter of Hatshepsut, she was the, she was the queen at that time, uh, he, he would have enjoyed, he would probably, probably have been become Pharaoh. But he chose... Not that. He chose to identify with his people. And so then God puts him on the desert in Midian for another 40 years. And then verse 27, he's 80 years old. He's ready to lead the children of Israel. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That's that tenth and final plague that God sends on, on, on Egypt to get the people uh, out, of, out of Egypt. And then in verse 29, he focuses on, the author focuses on the people of Israel. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That's Exodus 12. And verse 30, now we're in the conquest. He, he skips these hundreds of years. <laughs> but now we're in the conquest under Joshua by faith Rahab, 
The prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By the way, if I could just briefly comment on that. Rahab is one of the most remarkable women of the Bible. She is a prostitute. She's in Jericho, which was a major Canaanite city. And as they crossed the Jordan River, the very first city they face is Jericho. And Joshua's strategy is divide and conquer. He wants to split the Canaanite city-states in half and conquer the south first and conquer the north, which is what he does. But if he's going to do that, he first has to take Jericho. And Jericho was a key city, a formidable city. All the cities in the ancient world had walls around them. And they, Joshua sends a couple of spies in there. But it tells us of Rahab. Her house was on the inner, inner wall of the city of, Jer- of Jericho. And the text tells us this. She heard the stories of God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And then it says, and she believed. I mean, that, that's, that's remarkable. That's, a, that's just a remarkable statement. I, it's one of those statements that, boy, I wish we had a lot more detail. How did she hear about them? Well, it's, that was so extraordinary and so phenomenal, that news spread quickly throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. And so she heard this and she believed. Why did she believe? What was the content of what she heard? What caused her to believe? But she believed that Yahweh was the one who delivered them out, and Yahweh was the true God. And so the spies come in, and she says, I'll hide you. And the demonstration of her faith was her willingness to hide the spies. And the text tells us she then isn't, once the conquest is over, she's invited to join the Israelites. She becomes a proselyte, and she marries a Jewish man. His name is Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N. And where do you see Rahab and Solomon in the New Testament? In the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? That this Canaanite woman who had been a prostitute believed what was being said about Yahweh, she put her trust in him, and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that just, that's a remarkable statement Lifting this woman, I mean, otherwise she'd be an obscure woman. You'd never hear about her again. She helped the spies, great, wonderful. That was so significant that God honored her. And she married a Jewish man, and she was in the genealogy of Jesus. She's one of the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. You know who the other three are, don't you? Jim. I was not here last week, I'm sorry, so... No, that's, you're forgiven, my goodness. <laughs> Christianity is all about forgiveness. No, I'm just kidding. So, I wonder if you, you know, I'm sure you address this, but could you talk about a little bit what the immediate purpose of incorporating this kind of historical account in the record at that time was, and then maybe some about the implications it has for us. You mean the plagues, what we sometimes call... Oh, the Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the faith chapter. Oh, 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 this faith chapter. I, I, the implication for us today, I, I can answer. But what was the first part of your question? So why, why was this incorporated here? Why did he share this information with the, the Jews he was addressing? What was the purpose in, in that? That's great. Okay, now, now I got your question. Uh well, I think it goes back to the end of chapter 10, where twice he mentions faith. Uh, 
a faith that perseveres, a faith that endures. And I think to drive that home, that point home to the Jewish Christians of the first century to whom he's addressing this book. Now, you are Jews, and you understand the importance of that. What I want to do is review with you some individuals who illustrate, demonstrate, manifest for us enduring, persevering faith, who have that assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, that confident trust. And so he just goes person after person after person. And I would be pretty certain about this, that those who were the first readers of this book would have shaken their heads, yes, I understand. These are great heroes and heroines of the faith that I should be able to emulate. I, I, I want to be like them. And... Um, I think one of the, I'm, I'm, I'm mulling over whether I want to go down this money trip, but I think I'll go down this a little bit. One of the most significant things I think we, we can model for our children is this kind of faith. Because as you know, uh, this is, I think all of us, but especially children, children learn not only by what they hear, somebody say, whether it's a teacher or Sunday school, but also what they see. And if they don't see it, it doesn't make as great an impact on them. You know what I'm saying? And I, one of the, and it's an illustration of that for us is just some of the things that our, particularly our daughter has said to us about, um, about issues of faith in her life, and as she ties it back to what she saw in us. And one of the most significant things that she said to us, not, not really not that long ago, you guys really live it. <coughs> you know, I mean, that, what a simple statement. But that means a lot to us, doesn't it? Yes. You live it. You just don't say it. You live it. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to say these are genuine historical figures who, whom God used in incredible ways, but... These are men and women of confident trust in God. It's worthwhile following them. They're the, he's going to talk about this in chapter 12, as we'll get to in a minute, this cloud of witnesses. So all of these people, now whether that's how we should understand it, that's a little bit problem, but all these people are watching us now. They're in heaven, they're watching us. I don't know if they really are or not. But this cloud of witnesses, these are testimonies of what confident trust looks like. And every one of these so far, I mean, even Rahab. I mean, I, I always am astonished at Rahab. I really am. I mean, she believed something without any tangible tactile evidence. She just believed what she heard. Faith comes with hearing. Faith comes by hearing. That's how it starts. And so she believed it. And then she, she heard the spies she heard them say what they said from Joshua. She believed it, and she carried out that, what, there's no other way to describe it than infant faith, baseline, basic faith. God honored it. And he, he, he uses her in such an extraordinary way that she even ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. So Jim, I think for you and me, it's, 
I read these stories in the Old Testament. I see them summarized in chapter 11, as Paul says, these are for your advantage to learn from these people. Two ways. He says, don't make the mistakes they made and affirm in your life the things that please God in their life. I think that's the same thing you think. Am I sort of answering your yeah, question? Faith is such an important component to the Christian life. I mean, just the, how you choose to live, the decisions you make, you've got a world out there that's just inculcating you with, or me, with alternative paths and different thinking. And uh, to come back and kind of anchor yourself in the experience of these great patriarchs is right. very important. It really is. It really is. I remember discovering this chapter for the first time mm-hmm. after I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. What a remarkable Good. Great testimony. Absolutely. It really is. And it's just, it's one of those chapters that it's its worthwhile, and perhaps that's what you even mean even today, it's worthwhile just reading occasionally. Just reminding ourselves what, what he said to us in, uh, what was that exact verse, without faith, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. All right, where are we? Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after having been encircled for seven days. Now, you all know that story. You talk about a military strategic plan, that's an idiot. That's a, it's idiocy. <laughs> No Joint Chiefs of Staff member would ever follow that military plan. But God, the commander of the armies of God, told Joshua as he's standing. That's a great story. When you read that in Joshua, the early verses of Joshua, he crosses the Jordan and he's standing there. He's looking at Jericho. And he is, in effect, saying, how are we going to take this? And across the little stream, which flowed into the Jordan, across the little stream is standing, it defines it, the commander of the army of the Lord's hosts. Who is that? It's Jesus. It's a theophany. It's the angel of the Lord who appears to Joshua. He's called the commander. And he, and I'm really paraphrasing, he says, God has a plan for you of how you're going to take this immensely important city as you begin the conquest of Canaan. I want us to march around it seven times. That's all. You're not going to fight it. You're not going to storm it. You're not going to try to ram the gate open. You're going to just march around it. And you're going to do it seven days. And then the walls will collapse. Kathleen... Kenyon, who is a British archaeologist in the early 20th century, excavated, excavated Jericho. And do you know what she found? The walls of Jericho fell inward. Now that is exactly what the Bible says, because most of the time the walls would collapse outward, but they fell inward. And so that just gave extra biblical support to what the Bible says happened to the walls of Jericho. And so, I mean, you have this, you know, it's one verse, verse 30, just one verse. But Joshua believed what God was telling him to do to take this strategic city, the most non-military strategy ever developed by anybody. 
because it didn't involve any weapons, it didn't involve any military hardware, it involved faith. I'm going to destroy it. Do you trust me? And so they did. All right, now verse 32. And what more shall I say? Now he's going to go bang, 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 just bullet after bullet after bullet. For the time will not fail me to tell you of Gideon. You remember him, don't you? One of the judges who fought the Midianites. Remember how he fought battles with lanterns and trumpets? Barak, he joined with Deborah in defeating the, <clears throat> the Canaanite king to the north. I'm in verse 32. Just listing. Samson, everybody knows about Samson. By the way, do you know Samson is the last major judge of Israel? The Holy Spirit is mentioned more in relation to Samson than any other figure in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Despite all of his, you know, his shenanigans, but the Spirit of God came upon him, the Spirit of God came upon him, the Spirit of God came upon him, the Spirit of God came upon him. Jephthah, he made that ridiculous vow to God. David, you know David, King David. Samuel, the last of the judges, first of the major prophets. And then the prophets, plural. Four major prophets, twelve minor prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, remained strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put farmer foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to set release, so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. By the way, tradition tells us Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh of of Judah. That may be whom he's referring to. Killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, what, what he's talking about there in terms of not receive what was promised was that final uh, uh, promise of all elements of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's still we're still waiting for all of that to be fulfilled even today. But the, the, the importance is one of faith. And when he just says commended in verse uh, 20, uh, verse 39, it takes us back to verse 2. Commended by God, pleasing to God. What pleased God was not so much their work, although that obviously did, but that was evidence of their faith. So you have these giant, giant individuals throughout the scriptures who, in the Old Testament, who are highlighted as models and exemplars of faith. And I repeat again that strategic uh, verse uh, 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? The, uh, go ahead, Jim, I was going to ask I that there's a lot of debate about that because the text when you read it is not clear. But I think 
the way I interpret it, and when I've taught that um, in the, in the, the book of Judges, there that he did he did have his daughter killed to fulfill that vow. That's what I think too. It just seems, and then he's a he's recognized as man of great faith. It's like, well, even like Samson. You know, why honor Samson? Because he did, he did trust God at certain key times, certainly at the end of his life. Uh, well, certainly, certainly that's true. Well, it, it is of all the of all those listed in chapter eleven. Jephthah is the one. Well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'd put him in that list. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I know. It, but I, I think, in all likelihood, he did fulfill his vow. But he made that vow in faith of what God was doing in, in that context of Israel's history, and um, was willing to fulfill that vow regardless of its consequences. I don't. Yeah. I'm a little bit confused on verse thirty-nine and forty uh, when it talks about um, <clears throat> did not receive what he was promised. Is, you mentioned something about the Abraham promise not being totally fulfilled. And then on it says, God provided, had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Is that I, wanted, I wanted to comment a little bit on that. I was dealing more with verse 39. But better for us would mean us, this side of the cross and all that, is the new covenant. Better for us is the new covenant. These saints of old did not see all the elements of the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. But you and I see them fulfilled. It's something better. We can see it. We can see it completed and fulfilled. Good. All right. We've done chapter. Now your your, uh, thought paper for next week is choose five of the people from chapter 11 and comment on their confident trust in the Lord. That means you're going to have to back to the Old Testament. You're going to have to look it up. I know none of you will do that, but it would be so much fun to read it. The other week, two weeks ago, I'm preaching this series on angels at my church, and uh, we were dealing with a, a really, I, I thought, a very important, very significant topic relating to angels, some of the things. So I gave them a thought paper. So I had three people. <laughs> do a thought paper one really sharp attorney really a neat guy his was my goodness like a graduate level paper it was fantastic so it just reminds me I still can do a little bit of that every now and then so it was a lot of fun so alright can we move into chapter 12 mm-hmm. now there are two more chapters left in the book chapter 12 and chapter 13 so we're kind of nearing the end as you know we're going to study Colossians next But the author's not done with this element of faith. Therefore, obviously he's going to be drawing the threads together to make a major conclusion. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the cloud of witnesses? All the people we just studied, chapter 11. And we're surrounded by them. These are our models. These are the examples. These are exemplars. Let us, because of their, their faith and the model of faith they provide for us, 
the exemplar of faith, that this, this is what faith looks like. How should that affect our lives? What should be the practical outworkings of the truths about faith? He wants to make two major applicational points. One, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Second, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So do you see what he's doing? He's using the example, the analogy, of an ancient Roman circus. Now when you say circus, you think of lions and tigers and bears. That's not what is that comes from the Wizard of Oz, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> Nobody laughed at that. Okay. <laughs> Are you guys with me? But the, the circus, the circus was an oblong place where there were races in a typical Greco-Roman city. And so, where are all the cloud of witnesses? They're all around the track. They're all around the circus, okay? They're watching. They, whether we should understand that literally or not, they're the examples. They're the models. So, here's, here's Joel, and here's Woody. And I could put all of you up here, don't have time. All right. You're going to run the race. You're going to run the race. And your goal is the reward. That's the word he uses. This is your goal. Your goal is reward. How do you run the race? Well, can you think of a runner in an ancient Near Eastern running contest putting a heavy winter coat on, lead anklets around their, their ankles, and big gloves and a big hat. That's just ludicrous what I'm just saying. Can you imagine anybody doing that? No. As a matter of fact, in the Greek world, they didn't have any clothes on at all. They ran completely naked. They had no clothes. That's how they would run the race. But you don't, you don't have anything which is going to slow you down. So the author is saying, in the race of life, in the race of life, where faith is the most important quality. Faith insists that you are serious about the weight of sin. And you want to deal with it. How do you deal with the weight of sin? Number one, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That his finished work on Calvary's cross and subsequent resurrection was for you. You apply it to your life by faith. You accept that gift. And secondly, you begin, this is what sanctification is, you begin that process of beginning to deal with the habits and patterns of sin of your old because now you're a new creature in Christ. You're getting rid of the junk. That's the first thing. And then the second, the second thing you do is what? Then with endurance, the race, you endure. The word endure, another word for that is persevere. So, I mean, I don't know... You know, these, these races, now this was in the circus, so it's an oblong thing. But, you know, like the marathon, which was invented by the Greeks, too, to celebrate a victory in the Persian War, the same thing. It endure. If you're going to run 24 miles, you have to endure. You have to hang. You have to pace yourself. So the author is saying, as a runner runs in the Greco-Roman games, in the life of faith, your cloud of witnesses are the people who are your model, i.e. chapter 11. What was their life like? 
They dealt with sin, and they endured. They persevered. They hung in there. They trusted the Lord. They believed what he said. And that's the author is appealing to us, and well, to them initially, but to us even now. This is the race of life. And the race of life, there are two things. One, sin will weigh you down. Get rid of it. Deal with it. And then let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Now he's going to explain what that, how do we go about that. That's verse 2. But you understand, this is really a powerful image. It really is. When you understand what he's doing. You with me on that? So how do you do this then? How do I lay aside every weight and sin, run with endurance? How do I do that? Verse 2. Now, can, can I do something grammatical here? This may not mean too much, but this is a, it's called a, a participle of manner. It's explaining to us the manner. How do I go about doing this? What does it look to it? Looking to Jesus. So, a runner has a goal in mind. A runner, runner has his or her eyes. You're looking. That, that, there, what is it? It's the finish line. It's the finish line. Looking to Jesus. And that, that part of simple looking doesn't mean a cursory glance. You're intensely staring at him. <laughs> Your eye is focused singularly on him. Looking to Jesus. Now look at these words. The founder and perfecter of our faith. That's where faith starts. And that's how faith grows. Founder, perfecter. It is Jesus and his finished work on Calvary's cross and subsequent resurrection that is the beginning point of faith. And then, that's justification, I'm using Paul's words now, and sanctification is he begins to perfect you. He begins to mature you. He begins to grow you. That's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent image. And everyone in the ancient world, would, I got it. He's using that exactly now. I know exactly what he's doing with his words there. For you, I mean, it's a little more difficult. You don't quite have that. But, you know, all of you have some idea, like the Olympic races or the, the Tour de France, which just ended on a bike. I can't imagine any sane person would ever want to do that, but they do it. <laughs> but they, 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 these, are, these are people who get rid of all the weight and have a focus on enduring. But they've got, a, they've got their eyes singularly focused on something, that finish line. For you and me, it's Jesus. He's the founder of our faith. That's where it starts. And he's the perfecter of our faith. Who, now, now, now what, what kind of faith did Jesus have? He's the God man. What kind of faith did he? He trusted his father, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That, if you want to put it that way, that was his goal. Because it says he sits down, to his work of redemption is completed. So, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and that, again, for you and me, that isn't as meaningful as somebody in the first century, that was a very common thing to see in your life. The Roman Empire executing somebody by crucifixion. Because I'm sure you've read this. When they would crucify somebody, they didn't have any clothes on at all. 
the pictures we see in the Hollywood movies and so on, you know, they're always covered, the genital areas are covered. In Rome, Rome didn't cover those. So it's, it's the ultimate, the ultimate in shame. Jesus endured that for us. And the Heavenly Father exalted him to the right hand because he completed the work of redemption. So the author is concluding, concluding his exhortation about faith by bringing us back to Jesus. He is the founder, he is the perfecter, and he is a model of faith because he trusted his father. Got it? Mm-hmm. That might be even a better thought paper. In what yeah. way did Jesus manifest faith in his heavenly Father? Confident trust in some of Woody. Just, uh, the word joy in there. Who um, for the joy that was set before him? That would be to set at the right hand of God. That's the joy. I think it's that is part of it, but it is it is the entire um, completing and finishing the entire redemptive program that the the heavenly Father has through His Son. This is the complexities of God as Trinity, but nonetheless. So the joy there is not just, it's not a selfish, okay, good, I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. But it's sitting at the right hand of the Father because I've completed the redemptive work. And now, all of these rebellious humans, we can save them. We can rescue them. We can redeem them if they put their faith in me. So the joy of Christ isn't only completing his work and sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's the joy of making it possible for rebellious humanity to be reconciled to a holy God. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all it's all that all that comes with completing his his redemptive program assignment. Now, rebellious humanity can be reconciled to God. I I like to put it this way: the joy of Jesus. There are so many manifestations and categories of that joy, but the joy of Jesus is the population of heaven is growing. Every day it's growing. More and more is that in my in my message this past Sunday I talked about what can we learn from the angels. That was the main point. And one of one of the points I was making is joy. And I looked at that passage from, from Jesus in Luke 15, but what Jesus says, the angels are really excited when somebody puts their faith in Christ. Amen. There's a party in heaven. Now I'm, now I'm embellishing a little bit, but they, they, they are excited and thrilled when somebody comes into Christ. Just think about that. So it's that, it's that dimension of joy, Woody, that it's, it, it, it's deep and it, it goes to the heart of our loving, gracious, merciful, compassionate God. And that's how far God is willing to go to win us. Die on a cross, bear excruciating pain, and experience horrific, unimaginable shame. I mean, just think of this. The God-man hung on that cross naked. 
before a hostile crowd who mocked him, spit upon him. Why did he do that? For you and for me. That's why he did that. That's how much he loves us. That's part of that whole exhilarating joy that Jesus has. And the Father says, you've completed the work. Sit at my right hand. After church on Sunday, a guy came up to me, really sharp, sharp young guy, very bright. And he said, you know, I've been reading and, and looking through Scripture about the theme of the Bride of Christ. And he was really he was spot on. And he just went through how we are, the, you know, the Bride of Christ, that metaphor is the church. You know, the Bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. And it's very much the ancient, ancient Near Eastern world's traditions. It really is. But the, the father, the father would send his son and, and the son would, would be betrothed to a girl. And, and then they would be separated for a while until the father says to the son, okay, son, now it's time. Go get your bride. For the processional and for all of the magnificent, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the lamb. Where are you and I in that? We're the bride. We've been betrothed. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for our bridegroom to come get us. The word for that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. It's the rapture. When he comes to get us. He takes us back. In the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb which occurs when he returns in the second coming. I mean all of that and we, were, we, we talked through that for about five minutes so we just talked through that, those themes through the Bible. That too is an element of this joy. Jesus, his, his, his sacrifice and finished work on the cross has purchased his bride. That's the bride price. He's paid it. You know, you just call that a dowry. He's paid it. Now he's waiting for his father to say, go get your bride, which is the church. There was, I mean, there's just so many things through scripture that tie things together in a, in a very powerful metaphor, very powerful figure, and that's one of them. So that's another element of that joy. All right? Wow. Sort of good stuff. Now, starting verse 3, until we get to verse 11. We won't get that finished today, but we'll get it started. He begins to move into the aspect of the discipline, the loving, caring discipline of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which obviously Jesus did. Now just for a moment, not transitioning. Jesus is a good model of enduring. Jesus is a good motivator for enduring. Because why did he go through this? He did it for me. He did it for you. Now, with that groundwork, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, he's switching the whole figure of speech, the whole metaphor, to a family. Now, if 
there were gals in this class, I would say, sons there is gender neutral. It means children. It's not just male, no, it's children. Okay? J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book uh, called Knowing God, has a chapter called God is Father. And the first sentence of that chapter says this, the greatest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. Mm. That's the greatest privilege of the believer. And so that's what the author is doing now. He's switching. You're now a child. You're a child of God. Let's put it another way. You put your faith in Christ, the, the, the beginning of your faith, the perfecter of your faith, you now are in the family of God. Now, if you're in the family of God, that means you have a father. Who's your father? Your heavenly father. How does your heavenly father discipline you? I mean, I should really rephrase that. Should we expect our heavenly father to discipline us? You don't want to say yes to that. You want to say, you want to punt and say, nah, I can't. Right, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. This is a very important section. Uh, you know, I don't know a lot of you in terms of your family or, or, or whatever, but I think many, if not most of you, have children or have had children. You know, maybe they're adults and grown and have their own kids, grandkids and all that kind of stuff. But there is no parent in this room that has not engaged in discipline of your children. Right? Yes. Okay. Maybe in this room. What's that? Maybe in this room. <clears throat> now you guys got to tell me that you never disciplined Andrew. I know Andrew. Many, many, many times you had a discipline. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. Here's here's my question. What is the goal of discipline when you're the dad disciplining your children? Teach. What's that? Teach. To teach. Okay. Correct. Teach. Oh, that's good. Joe, you were going to say something? Correct. Correct. That's T E A C H. Correct, and by correct there is particularly correct their behavior. And then, okay, somebody said something else. Respect. Okay, to teach and gain respect and that kind of thing. Um, no, none of you so far has managed mentioned punish. You don't want to punish your kid. See, punish is one of those. Uh, it's kind of different. It is, isn't it? It's not really the same. As this. That, that, that's exactly right. Is your goal, is your goal in discipline punitive, or is your goal in discipline restorative? Do you understand what I mean by that? Is your goal punitive or restorative? It's restorative. For whatever the cause is, and whatever the nature of it is, your child has done something that needs your attention. And your fundamental goal is not to, it's not punitive, it's not to punish them. 
you may, you know, we don't do that too much anymore, you may spank them on the bottom, and, you know, that pretty harsh thing to do in 2019. Some states are passing laws that make it a crime for a parent to paddle a child. But leaving all that crazy stuff aside, it may hurt, but your goal is, your goal is not to punish them. Your goal is not to hurt your child. Your goal is to correct their behavior, to restore them. They've broke, let's put it that they've kind of broken a family standard. And you need to correct them. You need to get them back to a path of obedience, of loving obedience. And so, actually, I don't remember, I forget who said this, but the word is actually, the Greek word for discipline relates to the word we use for teaching today. And so, the idea of discipline, as the author of Hebrews is using it here, is, is not a punitive hurtful, harmful discipline, although it may involve that, that's not its goal. It's corrective. It's restorative. It's to change behavior. A, a child of God has gotten off the path of loving obedience. How does God bring them back? That's what the author's talking about here. A child, a child of God who's put their faith in his son and desires to walk with him has gotten off the path. How does God bring them back? One of the Greek words used of this in, in the book of James is planeo. We get our word planet from that. The wandering ones in the skies. The Greeks couldn't figure out that. They got the stars, they got the sun, they got the moon. But there were these bodies up there. There weren't too many of them because of the sea with the human eye. But they seem they're kind of going all over the place. They're the wandering ones. It was Mars, it was Venus, it was Mercury. And they called them the planets. So what do you do when a, what do you do when your child, planetos, wanders off the path of obedience? You want to bring them back. That's what the author is doing here. So the author says, God deals with you as your as his children. Now, what's the theme? Faith. Persevere with faith. What if you get off the track? What if you get off the track of loving obedience? Remember, you're God's child. So the author quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 in verse six, uh, rather verse 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? Verse 6. You could translate that because. 4. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So, now listen to me. An element of persevering is understanding God's discipline. You will not endure. You will not persevere if you don't understand that God does discipline those whom he loves. He trains. He equips. He teaches. He corrects. He fosters respect and worship and awe for him through discipline. 
Don't regard that lightly. Don't treat it as insignificant. Because when God disciplines you, it proves something to you. It proves he loves you. Some, some examples of what? Discipline. Well, um, I'm, I, I'm trying to think of a biblical example and not necessarily use an example from our lives. But look, if, if you are, um, if, if you're King David and you commit adultery and um, you try to cover that up, was King David a candidate for the discipline of God? Yes. Did God discipline him? Yes. First thing God did was that child that was conceived by his adultery with Bathsheba was taken. And David said, that's God's discipline. God took my child. Now I know I will go to be with him. Meaning that's one of the verses I would use that children, um, infant children go to be with the Lord if they die. But that's not the main point. David understood that as God's discipline. He understood that as God trying to get his attention to admit and confess and agree with him about what he had done, and it was wrong. And he did that. And you read about that then in Psalm 51, where David talks about the heavy disciplinary hand of God on his life to correct him, get him back, so to speak. Another example, I think, would be like Peter in his denial of Jesus. Jesus said, so you're going to do that? He said, no, I'll never do that. I'll die for you. And of course, he, he denied Jesus three times. And that they, they must have been, those, those weeks that followed must have been excruciating for Peter as he lived with that haunting truth that he had denied Jesus three times. John chapter 21, Jesus is on the shore, North Shore of Sea of Galilee. He's been resurrected. He's cooked breakfast for the guys. They come off their shipping boat, uh, fishing boats. What does Jesus do? He says, uh, Peter, it's you and I take a walk. As Peter, do you love me? How many times does he ask Peter if he loved him? Three times. That's a loving, gentle discipline. Peter, you must face what you did. Do you still love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And so he goes through that. The whole perspective of Peter changes as a result of that conversation with Jesus. Um, in in my own life, I can, and I think all of you can maybe cite it in your own life. There are examples where God God is is, is very focused on getting you to deal with something you need to deal with in your life. Let's get your attention. So that you are willing, you're willing to accept his discipline, that is, that corrective discipline to change. Isn't there also a punishment component to it? I know we didn't put it up there, but you think about the children of Israel who wouldn't go into the promised land and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. You think about the Israelites who during the king period, you know, over the church period, you know, there is, I, th- I think, another way to put that, Jim, too, is that there are often consequences 
that go with our not walking in obedience, not trusting, not having it. And those consequences can be worked out either as a part of God's discipline or just the consequence that God, the way God made things, is there are always consequences in that area. That was true for the children of Israel. One of the most extraordinary for me is in Numbers chapter 20, where Moses, instead of speaking to the rock as God told him to, he strikes the rock and says, because you did that, you will not see the promised land. I always think, wait a minute, that's so harsh. I mean, all he did was strike one rock. (laughs) But the implications of that are enormous, because all of the children of Israel, at least the elders, the leaders, had heard God say, strike the rock, or speak to the rock. You see, this is where they are is limestone. And shepherds all the time struck limestone rock to bring water because limestone is very porous, you know, not a solid, hard rock. And so for him to strike the rock, well, shepherds do that all the time. But to speak to the rock, that's totally of God. That's not what Moses did. So did Moses exhibit a confident trust in God's word at that point? No. And Moses is the leader. And God, in effect, says, Moses, you shame me before the children of Israel. I was very serious. You're the leader. And the consequence of that, the people have to see the consequence of you defying me in that way. And that consequence is, you're not going to see the promised land. I'm going to take you up to Mount Nebo. You're going to look, of course, you're going to see it, but you're not going to go in there. Joshua's going to do it. Jim, there are consequences, too. Is David, sorry, is Moses restored to fellowship? Yeah. And even when God, when Moses dies, God's the one who buries him. God takes care of him. God loves him. But they're consequent. Were there consequences to David's adultery and murder of Uriah? Yes. Mm-hmm. Rebellion in his household. Absalom. There's rebellion in his household. There are consequences. It's way over time. May I pray? Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up with verse, I'm going to write, pick up with verse 5 again next week. I want to do this discipline in one unit. Lord, thank you for tremendous, tremendous study in faith. These giants of the faith, these witnesses that uh, that we have of individuals who had a confident trust in you. And the author concludes even Jesus, his trust in his father. Uh, he was Ill, willing to endure the cross, despise the shame, and saw his father put him at the right hand because he completed his work of redemption for us. Lord, we thank you for these examples of faith. May we be men of faith. We've said that several times these last couple of weeks. May we be men in our families who exhibit and who model a confident trust in you. We don't only say it, we live it. We really are men of faith. Lord, grow our faith. Help us to grow in our dependence on you. Help us to grow in our trust in you because we all face many, many things in life where it is important for us to trust you with it. Things that we can't see, we can't figure out, but we do know that you're a God who's at work. You care for us. You have our best interests at heart. You love us. We therefore can trust you. So give us that dimension of our walk with you. We want to walk with you in loving obedience. We want to trust you. We want to be men of faith, and we ask that you'll help to continue to grow that faith in each one of our lives. As we do that, we, are begin- we will be men who represent you well. We do this to the glory and honor of Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen. 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 See you next week.